0: Tell me about this big scoop that you and our colleague Bob Woodward had last night.
1: CBS News and The Washington Post collaborated on an investigation of text messages, 29 in total, between the spouse of a Supreme Court justice, Ginny Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, and Mark Meadows, uh, when he was serving as chief of staff of President Donald Trump's White House.
0: Bob Costa is chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News. He and Post reporter Bob Woodward obtained these text messages that Mark Meadows turned over to the committee investigating January 6th. And these messages fill in the picture of what was happening behind the scenes in the weeks after the 2020 election. When, according to the texts, Ginny Thomas was urging Mark Meadows to keep doing everything he could to overturn it.
1: These messages reveal an extraordinary pipeline between the spouse of a Supreme Court justice and a key official inside of the executive branch, all as then-President Trump was pushing to bring his own election fight all the way to the Supreme Court. It raises new questions about this kind of relationship and its appropriateness. Congress is already investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol And now they've obtained these text messages that show some kind of communication, at the very least, on legal strategy between the spouse of a justice and the White House chief of staff.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 25th. Today, we're hearing more from Bob about these incredible text messages and the questions they're raising about efforts to overturn the election. Then, later in the show, why Prince William's Caribbean tour is bringing up issues of reparations, independence, and what royalty represents in the 21st century. I want to ask more in a second about some of the details of these text messages and the implications. But first, can you just remind us, like, who is Virginia Thomas and what have we known about her before these revelations came out?
1: Ginny Thomas is a longtime conservative activist. And most people, when they heard the news about her text messages, they weren't surprised. Her activism has been front and center on the right wing of American politics for many years. And Clarence Thomas, as Supreme Court Justice, has always said his wife has her own independent professional work, and it has nothing to do with what he does as a Supreme Court Justice. But what we see in these text messages is an attempt by Ginny Thomas to influence the chief of staff's strategy on how to fight the election result. You see Ginny Thomas, for example, promoting Sidney Powell, a conservative lawyer who's promoted conspiracy theories. You also see her bringing in other conspiracy theories that have links to the QAnon movement and floating these in front of uh, the White House chief of staff You see her trying to rally the chief of staff to be tougher on House Republicans to make sure people are backing President Trump. And you see her criticizing Vice President Mike Pence just days after the insurrection. She's saying she is disgusted with Pence for not following Trump's advice and doing his bidding by trying to block the certification of President Joe Biden. What a sweeping picture these text messages present about this relationship and about how determined so many allies in Trump's circle were to overturn the election. And there's an emotion that courses through the text messages. At one point, Mark Meadows says in a text message to Ginny Thomas, this is about good versus evil Mm. and evil can never triumph until the King of Kings wins. That's not verbatim, but it essentially captures how faith, emotion, invocations of God, these are all happening in a back-channel communication between Thomas and Meadows.
0: But I think what's important to understand here is that this isn't just about how Ginny Thomas felt about the election or her connection to other conservatives. I mean, this was; these were legal issues that were also in front of the Supreme Court at the time, in front of Thomas's husband to decide on.
1: That's exactly right. While Ginny Thomas is texting Mark Meadows, you see the Trump legal team trying to pursue numerous legal challenges at the state level, but also with an eye on the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court eventually ruled on some of these election challenges. Clarence Thomas was a lone dissent on some of these decisions, saying they should be heard before the Supreme Court, even though Mm -hmm. they ultimately were not. Justice Thomas also was part of decisions the court made on whether— Documents should be turned over to the January 6th committee. He ruled more in favor of the Trump position, which is that these documents should not be given over because of the provision of executive privilege.
0: And so why is that important? Why is that a cause for concern for people who expect the Supreme Court to be unbiased in these kinds of decisions?
1: Well, to be clear, Justice Thomas is not mentioned in these text messages. There's a reference to a, quote, best friend, from Jenny Thomas, but she never specifies that it's uh, Justice Thomas. It, it should be noted that Justice Thomas has in the past publicly referred to his wife as his best friend, but again, she's not specifying it's him. That said, the communications between Thomas and Meadows raise questions about how the court should function, how spouses should function. There's no real guidebook for this. Hmm. It's an ethical question, a legal question, a political question. And an oversight of a Supreme Court justice is always a tricky issue. It's an independent third branch of government. The legislative branch in a way has oversight. They can impeach a Supreme Court justice, but they don't have any kind of day-to-day oversight only for extreme, severe matters where this kind of thing usually come before Congress. So it's an independent branch, and most of the justices within those, that branch operate in, in a very independent way without coordinating with each other or having some sort of higher power. The Supreme Court is the higher power in many respects.
0: Is there a precedent for this, for the spouse of, of a Supreme Court justice to be so political to the point of advocating to the president's chief of staff to essentially try to overturn the election?
1: Bob Woodward and I have discussed this and we don't see a precedent. If a historian is listening to this and has a precedent about this kind of relationship between the executive branch and a spouse of a justice, please let us know. (laughs) But we have not found anything that really comes close to anything like this with a spouse coordinating, in some ways, strategy, who should be the lead in the face of the legal team. Those were Ginny Thomas's words in one text message. And it's just an extraordinary back channel during a time where this wasn't just kind of idle political chit chat, rah rah. This was while the White House, the Trump White House, was pursuing legal challenges that could end up before the court.
0: And how do you know all of this? How do you know about what Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows were texting each other?
1: We have reviewed these text messages and confirmed them with five members familiar with them who are close to the committee or aware of the committee's work. Uh, and so this is a long form investigative project. You work sources, you try to find documents, get the story. You have to be patient a lot. As Bob Woodward has taught me, working together on numerous things, reporting takes time. And this story certainly did, and uh, we were able to confirm it. And here we are today trying to follow the story that we broke.
0: What do you think will be the implications of this? I mean, could there be real blowback here for Justice Thomas?
1: I don't want to get ahead of it too much because we just don't know all the answers here. For example, how we don't know all the answers. Think about this. We have 29 text messages we've reviewed obtained between Thomas and Meadows. But it's clear that these might not be the only 29 exchanges between Thomas and Meadows. Meadows stopped cooperating with the January 6th committee last year. And you see many uh, Democrats believe he should be prosecuted for doing this. But he did provide 2,320 Messages to the committee. These 29 messages come out of that trove of messages, but there's a gap. I mean, these text messages we've obtained and reviewed and confirmed end in November, late November 2020. There's a stray one that comes again in the stash in January of 2021. But what about January 6th? What about late Mm -hmm. December? All these critical periods. Was Ginny Thomas just not texting Mark Meadows? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I'd like to find out.
0: Hmm. Has Justice Thomas said anything about this, or has Ginny Thomas said anything about your
1: reporting? Justice Thomas has not responded to a request for comment made through the Supreme Court's Public Information Office, and Ginny Thomas has not responded to numerous email and phone calls trying to uh, engage her to get comment. We will update at any time when they choose to engage and comment on any of this, but we've tried our best, and uh, so far, no comment.
0: It feels like the timing of this is very interesting, coming the same week as the confirmation hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, where she was essentially under enormous pressure to say that she would recuse herself in cases where she had some kind of personal connection. And that feels, in some ways, at odds with what Justice Thomas did in cases related to uh, January 6th and the election. So... How do you think that this is going to put more pressure on Thomas to potentially recuse himself? Or people ask questions about why he didn't recuse himself when it came to uh, what was happening around January 6th.
1: Well, look, we're going to have to track this. Thomas hasn't said a word. He's been hospitalized. Uh, We wish him well, but there will certainly be questions to answer. It's notable, though, that Justice Thomas has always resisted commenting much at all about any of his wife's political activities. He doesn't make many public comments ever on anything. He's also a rare questioner during Supreme Court arguments. So our expectations are low, but who knows? We're in a fluid time with this committee having an ongoing investigation. The Justice Department is moving fast on its own investigations. The House January 6th Committee, let's not forget, said in a recent court filing in California that they believe, the House January 6th Committee believes, that they have uncovered a criminal conspiracy So you have a House committee, at the very least, believing a crime had taken place related to the Trump White House and the push to overturn the election. Now they've obtained texts that show a spouse of a Supreme Court justice in some way communicating with the White House that they believe was engaged in a criminal conspiracy. And we have little clarity about Justice Thomas's knowledge, if any, of the scope of communication his wife had with the White House. And so your questions are all the right questions, the right questions. The question is, you know, where does this all go?
0: Bob Costa is a correspondent for CBS News. He reported this story with Bob Woodward at The Washington Post. Our segment was produced by Emma Talkoff. After the break, why a royal visit to the West Indies has gone south. We'll be right back. And now we've got one more thing about Prince William, his wife Kate, and their controversial royal trip.
2: William and Kate are visiting the Caribbean. They're on an eight-day trip. They're going to um, Belize, Jamaica, the Bahamas.
0: That's Carla Adam. She's the London correspondent for The Post, which means that she often covers the royal family.
2: And the reason they're going there is that they're there to mark the Queen's platinum jubilee. The Queen Elizabeth II is celebrating 70 years on the throne. It's a long time for anyone to do a gig. Unprecedented for a British monarch. And the firm, as the the royals call their own British royal family, you know, they will be acutely aware of how several countries in the region are moving towards independence. And so the thinking probably was, let's send our youngish and fairly popular royals on a tour, and this will help to strengthen links in the UK. Except it's gotten a
0: little more complicated than that, because this trip has been marred by faux pas and awkward moments. In Jamaica, there was a photo of the Duchess of Cambridge that had some weird optics. She's standing on one side of a tall chain link fence with children pressed up against the other side, reaching their hands through the wires toward her. The BBC called it a white savior parody. And then there was the speech by Prince William. Particularly this week, with the International Day of Remembrance of the victims of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. I strongly agree with my father, the Prince of Wales who said in Barbados last year that the appalling atrocity of slavery forever stains our history. I want to express my profound sorrow. Slavery was abhorrent and it should never have happened.
2: Many people have called for the royals to formally apologize for the British royal family's particular role in the slave trade. And William doesn't do that. He doesn't formally apologize. He expresses his, his regret and his profound sorrow. But nonetheless, there's a debate here about, you know, should William have formally apologized? Did he, did he miss an opportunity to do that?
0: This royal trip has reignited so many big questions that are facing former British colonies. There are questions about reparations and whether the UK or even the royal family should pay back some of the wealth that they accrued through the slave trade. But there are also questions about independence. Last fall, Barbados officially became a republic, formally removing the queen as their head of state. Jamaica and other Caribbean countries are considering the same thing.
2: One of the really surprising moments was this blunt meeting um, with, where you had the Prime Minister of Jamaica greeting William and Kate when the cameras were rolling and saying, you know, Jamaica's moving on. And he said that Jamaica's true ambition was to be an independent nation.
0: But Jamaica is, as you would see, uh, a country that is very proud of our history, very proud of what we have achieved. And uh, we are moving on. And we intend to attain, in short order, of development goals uh, and fulfill our true ambitions and destiny as an independent, uh, developed, prosperous
2: and the prime minister's called for Jamaica to become a republic before. And so in that sense, his views on this are known. But he says this in front, of, in front of the royals. He's standing a few feet away from Prince William. The cameras are rolling. And I think that that was quite a moment.
0: To be clear, there have been plenty of positive reactions to the visit. There have been cheering crowds. There have been smiling meet and greets. But there have also been protests. Some activists there want to make it known that they are not charmed by the charm offensive. Here's Stacey Ann Chin, an activist and poet who is protesting the visit.
2: They shouldn't be welcomed as leaders of the country, as representatives of the head of state. How these two young white people now going to be here saying we are going to kowtow to them and we are going to bend and, and bow and kneel to them as, as if they are gods? Those days are done. Those, the monarchies are relic. We should leave it behind. It's time for us to move forward and talk about, Democrat, talk about de- the democratic process. You know, Carla, everything
0: you're describing here, I think, speaks to how, for many of us, watching a trip like this has started to feel kind of cringy, right? That you have these, like, two rich white people running around these countries, sort of waving at their loyal subjects, and that it just— it it feels weird and yet at the same time this does seem like a big part of what it means to be a member of the royal family to be the head of the commonwealth and so i wonder like what you think this moment says about the complicated position that the royal family is in right now
2: i think that when they return i think that there will be you know discussions and and a sort of rethink about how, how to do these royal trips. I don't think there's any discussion right now about stopping these royal trips, but, but certainly rethinking about how they're done. I think that, you know, the British royal family will be giving some thought onto how they do these in the future and how to continue to create links between Britain and other countries, but in in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, a throwback to a different era. Carla Adam is the London
0: correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by me and Ariel Plotnick. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Jordan-Marie Smith is a producer. Ariel Plotnick and Renny Spernovsky are associate producers. Sabby Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The Post Director of Audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.